Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here Thursday, December 14th, 2023, as we close out another week in irreverence. That is the goal to which we strive. Every now and then someone will come up and say, I am insufficiently irreverent to claim the title of Canada's most irreverent talk show. But there are two answers to that. Number one, uh, irreverence is in the eye of the beholder. And number two, I have yet to encounter anyone else who has made a claim to be Canada's most irreverent talk show. So I am self-identifying like all those guys that want to use tampons in the uh, men's wash th- washroom at uh, the Parliament buildings, which is apparently this great uh, public service that we were in need of and didn't even know it. So I am self-identifying as irreverent unless someone wants to come along and uh, challenge me for the title. We can have a, a Hamiltonian Burian duel Uh, on uh, some battlefield if we need to sort things out there. Nevertheless, it is wonderful to have you aboard the show. We're going to be talking a little bit later on about online pornography, which will either uh, tantalize you or turn you away in disgust. We are not going to be showing any of it, uh, which will either disappoint you or delight you. So I'll let you decide for yourself on that one. Also going to be speaking later on with Professor Tom Flanagan about his new book, Grave Error, which is a phenomenally, I would say, controversial book and and subversive book on an issue that I know True North uh, folks in True North Nation out there have been paying attention to, but much of the mainstream media has not, at least not in this way. So that we'll uh, chat about with Dr. Flanagan later on in the program. But I want to begin by kind of exploding something that was meant as a bit of a joke but might actually have merit here. Jordan Peterson, who you may have heard of, he's made a couple of headlines in the last couple of years. He, I interview, I haven't had him on this show, but I, I had him on my former show for like a whole hour and we talked about anything and everything under the sun and I've met him a, a number of times. He's always been a, a big supporter of True North and the work that we do here. He's got some best-selling authors. He has just announced that in uh, February, March and into April, He's like touring basically every major and mid-level city in the United States, Jordan Peterson is doing. And if his uh, previous tours are any indication, these will all sell out. But he is willing to give it all up. Jordan Peterson is willing to give up the touring, give up the uh, aggressive media schedule, maybe give up the podcast even, to take one particular job that admittedly has not yet been offered to him. But maybe we can start a bit of a campaign to draft Jordan Peterson. That job is president of Harvard University. Now, Harvard is the uh, school in the Ivy League that is synonymous with excellence to a lot of people, but has, as of late, become synonymous with anti-Semitism. And the thing that's interesting about this is that so far there's no vacancy. The president is not resigning, and uh, that's Claudine Gay, that's her name, and so far the school is not prepared to get rid of her. Now, she's had a bit of a one-two punch of controversies as of late. First, there was her unwillingness to condemn in unequivocal terms that uh, genocide and calls for genocide violate Harvard's anti-bullying policy. There was this rather awkward exchange between her and Republican Congresswoman Elise Stefanik you may have caught last week in the House of Representatives and one of its uh, committees. Take a look. Dr. Gay at Harvard does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment, yes or no? It can be, depending on the context. What's the context? 
targeted as an individual, targeted as, at an individual. It's targeted at Jewish students, Jewish individuals. Do you understand your testimony is dehumanizing them? Do you understand that dehumanization is part of anti-Semitism? I will ask you one more time. Does calling for the genocide of Jews violate Harvard's rules of bullying and harassment? Yes or no? Anti-Semitic rhetoric. When it and is it anti-Semitic rhetoric? Anti-Semitic rhetoric when it crosses into conduct that amounts to bullying, harassment, intimidation, that is actionable conduct and we do take action. So the answer is yes, that calling for the genocide of Jews violates Harvard Code of Conduct, correct? Again, it depends on the context. It does not depend on the context. The answer is yes, and this is why you should resign. These are unacceptable answers across the board. I must say, I don't love the showmanship of American congressional committees. I think it's oftentimes more powerful to let people sink themselves with their own words than to do this feigned outrage like Congresswoman Stefanik was. Ask a question. You don't need to cut her off and ask again because you know her answer is going to be more damning than your question is going to be in this case. But what type of conduct is it that has become the norm at Harvard? Well, here's just one example we plucked out for you. No word, I forgot how short that clip was. I was looking at the other monitor. No word on if that violates Harvard's anti-bullying policy, but that was just the one of the one-two punch. A few days ago, some independent journalists, Christopher Rufo and Chris Brunette, found out that uh, there are very serious plagiarism challenges that can be leveled against Claudine Gay's doctoral work, her dissertation, which eventually gave her a PhD, which eventually uh, propelled her into her career in academia that led to her being the president of Harvard. And they found that she has lifted a number of passages without attribution, which in a couple of cases, the authors of the plagiarized work have said, yeah, this pretty much looks like garden variety plagiarism. But even so, she has not announced she's going to step down. Now, this is where Jordan Peterson comes in. Jordan Peterson had this rather cheeky post on X this morning. Excuse me, Harvard, if you're looking for a new candidate for president with a proven academic track record, a now international reputation, and the ability to stand up to the bloody narcissist of the woke mob. I know someone who might be interested, just saying. And then to punctuate it, he put a colon and a clothing parentheses, which I believe is a smiley face emoticon, as the kids say. It's not an emoji. Uh, this is a very important distinction. An emoticon is like the original. The emoji is the colorized versions of it. So there's your uh, history and the development of online uh, shorthands for your emotions, which uh, maybe I should do a dissertation in that. I can be like Claudine Gay and I can just uh, copy and paste it from other folks. But uh, Jordan Peterson's having a bit of a lark here. I don't think he's uh, pursuing this, although he has tried to, in the past, launch things like the Peterson Academy. And for a time, there was a Jordan Peterson-inspired MBA program at, I believe, the University of Austin. It was a, a university in Texas. But nevertheless, what's interesting here is that Jordan Peterson is exposing in his little joke that Harvard is not interested in pushing back against the mob. 
And this is the serious point underlying Harvard's defense of anti-Semitism on its campus, is that they're saying, well, yes, we have academic freedom, we have free speech, this is all important. And I say, absolutely, yes, I support their right to be like that. But Harvard is very inconsistent about this, as are most universities. If you want to go on campus and say, I believe that a male can be a female, they're going to say, well, I don't know if you have academic freedom to say that. But if you want to get up there and talk about uh, genocide in this context, they want to shroud themselves in freedom. And I think this is where it gets to be very important about applying these rules consistently. So uh, whether or not he is actually auditioning for the job, I don't know. But I thought it was a, a nice cheeky way to raise attention to the fact that currently the status quo there is not working. I wanted to pivot back into Canadian politics for a few moments here. There was this bill that was advanced by the House of Commons and sent off to committee yesterday that has not gotten a huge amount of coverage. And, and part of the reason is that this is a Senate private members bill. Now, these are not often pieces of legislation that get passed. But in this particular case, we see enough support in the House of Commons to at least move it so far. It's already passed the Senate which is why it's in the House. If you are trying to keep track at home of the numbers, it is a bill. Oh, now I forget the bill. It's a Senate bill S210, I want to say. But basically what this bill does is strive to restrict access to minors, to young people, to online pornography. Now, let me first and foremost say I wholeheartedly agree with what the bill is trying to accomplish. I think that online porn is tremendously harmful when you're talking about the implications on young people. I know it's very accessible. And there have been studies after studies after studies that have shown that young people, children, I mean, in some cases as young as like six, seven years old, are accessing just absolutely horrendous and vicious things that become part of their perception and conceptualization of what sex and sexual expression are. I'm talking about violence. I'm talking about sex acts that most adults who have been, you know, engaged in sex for many, much of their lives would not even know exist. And this is something that we see happening. So uh, the idea of preventing children from accessing that, I agree with wholeheartedly. The question becomes, how do you do it? Now, what this bill would do if passed is create a regulatory environment where you need to provide proof of your age if you want to get on a website that is offering sexually explicit material. Proof of age. Now, I, does that mean like when you want to go to a website, oh, I just have to say my birth date is, you know, January 1st, 1901 and click OK and that's that? Or does it mean something that is more comprehensive? They want something more comprehensive, like, for example, uploading your identification. Now, this to me is where you get into the very glaring issue here with this. Now, the conservatives, the NDP, the Bloc Québécois, they were all supporting this. It was most liberals that said no. And then the conservatives kind of just started being very outraged about, oh, how dare the liberals vote against this? Now, why the liberals vote against it, I don't know. But suffice it to say, I do not believe their approach is from the same place that mine is, which is that I concede there is a harm. I agree that harm needs to be dealt with. But I don't believe that uh, this is going to create the solution that people think. 
So why this is so very important is because right now we have two aims that are kind of working against each other. One is that we should not have excessive government regulation on the internet. The other is that we should actually try to protect children from the harm of pornography. Now, uh, listen, I'm, I'm not making a judgment of people's personal tastes here. I think that uh, people as adults can do what they want. This is where my inner libertarian comes out uh, from a legal perspective. And if we want to pass all these moral judgments, that's something we get to do as individuals and as a society. Not that I'm encouraging being judgmental, but uh, we can typify what is right and what is wrong on our own without government being the one to make that call. Now, why I think this is so important for us to understand here is that if the government is going to do this, force these companies, one of the biggest porn companies in the world is a Canadian company, MindGeek, which owns Pornhub and some related sites. Uh, one of the things that government will be doing is forcing them to do this age verification process. So uh, on the surface, there are going to be people that say, well, hang on, I don't want to have to upload my driver's license to uh, to this uh, you know, porn company here and, and all the privacy implications that come along with that. Well, uh, some folks in the computer science space say you can deal with this without having those privacy issues. So I wanted to delve into that a little bit. Joining me on the line now is Asfar Adib, who is a doctoral candidate in electrical and computer engineering at Concordia University. Uh, it's good to have you, Asfar. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Andrew, for the invitation. It's great to be here. So the obvious issue here is that people, I think, have a right to protect their privacy. And if, if you want to engage as an adult in uh, watching online pornography, the idea of having to provide identification, of having to prove who you are, kind of erodes that fundamental relationship people think they have with the internet. So how can this be done in a way that protects individual privacy, if it can? Yeah, that's a great question. So right now, what we usually do, we use our IT documents to verify our age. For example, here in Canada, we have our driving license, our passport, or maybe our health card. So the current way is, if we need to prove that we are adults, then we have to take a picture of the ID or we have to scan it. And there are some third-party softwares which do the verification. And then, then they say, this, okay, this guy is above 18 or maybe they are not. So which is something that's being used all over the world. Now, the privacy concern is when we are sharing our ID document, we are sharing a lot of information about us. So that's a big privacy concern. So that's why we are proposing some alternatives, which we call biometrics. That means something from our body, which tells our age. For example, uh, some social media, they have tested Instagram, uh, I mean, the egg checking on Instagram using facial image. So you just sit in front of a webcam, you let them take a picture of yours, and using artificial intelligence, they can tell whether you are an adult or not. So this is considered more privacy assuring because we don't need to share our ID documents. And consequently, uh, like I am doing my PhD research at Concorde in Montreal, we are working with hard signals, which can tell our age. And also there are some other technologies. So in summary, ID document is an option. The other option is using biometrics, which comes from our body and which tells our age. I think this raises, though, another issue. I, I don't, not to be too graphic here, but someone who's about to access a pornography site, I don't think the thing they want is for that website to be taking a picture of them in that moment. 
Yeah, it is, this is really a hard call. So it's up to the user. They have to decide. Do they want to share their ID or they do, do they want to allow to take their image? In either way, they have to tell something about themselves. And that's why we know there are other opinions about this bill. But as you rightly said, Andrew, this bill is very important to protect our kids. Because in the last 10 years, child sexual abuse have increased over 800% here in Canada. And we still see these stories. Just two weeks ago, we saw a story of a boy of 12 years committed suicide because he was a victim of sextortion. We know about Amanda Tott in BC, who took her life 10 years back, and she was a victim of sextortion as well. So we need to put it our kids, and that's why we have to make some compromise. So we are working with different technological options, and it's up to us which are we take. Now, I know there are options here. I mean, as it's worded now in this bill that's making its way through Parliament, government could uh, force websites to do this. Now, would the expectation be that each website has its own way of doing this? Or would there be a, a natural third party that would emerge that websites would use that kind of does this that people may trust? Like, for example, I mean, PayPal is a, a, an example where, yeah. you know, if you're a website, instead of just taking the credit cards yourself, you could just say, well, you know PayPal, you trust PayPal, you can use them and they'll pay us. Yeah, exactly. So ideally, this is done by a third party. There are different companies who offer this service. Uh, we can have a look at what UK are doing. UK has doing a, done a very good job in terms of online protection. Just recently, they had their online safety bill. So they have their own regulator who is looking after these things. So similarly here in Canada, we need someone, it can be CRTC or someone else, to take up that responsibility to make a common platform where this age verification will take place. And as you rightly said, Andrew, whatever technology we bring, people will be concerned about their data. And we need to assure them that this data remain protected. It is not being used for any other purpose. That's why we need a centralized server which takes the data, which ensures that this data is not used by anyone else except for edge verification. And we can integrate some third-party softwares to do the job for us. Now, so that obviously people the best systems out there are vulnerable. I mean, just today in my city, yeah. for example, the, the library's yeah. website has been subject to a massive cyber attack and is inaccessible. Mm -hmm. So uh, one idea that I, you mentioned in an op-ed I, I read from you is that there's a system in which the data can never be saved at all. Like it could basically be assessed mm -hmm. and deleted immediately. But is that a, as as transparent as it sounds, or, or does it live in some way, in a way that theoretically some hacker could access? Uh, yeah, ideally the law records you to just to check the age and maybe keep the data for a certain time. It can be for one minute or two minutes, and then the data has to be deleted. That's what the law records. But as you again rightly said, uh, yes, there are always loopholes in the technology and there are ways to breach the data. So we need to give our best try. So I was again, to, I can mention about the UK example or about the European example. They have the GPDR there, which is the privacy protection law, which is pretty strong. And whenever there is a breach, the consequences are very harsh. So we have to work in both ways. In technically, we have to make sure that, yes, we have this technology which can do the verification and delete the data in one or two minutes or in a very minimum time frame. And on the legal side, if there is any kind of breach, we need to make sure that the companies are accountable. It might be a hard call because not everything is hosted here in Canada, obviously. We have the big social media companies and a lot of websites who are not legally accountable here, but still we have to put our best try to make them accountable. So that's what we need to keep trying. 
Well, it's certainly an interesting topic, and I, I think there are, there are a lot of questions that people can have and, and should have about uh, the regulatory side, about privacy rights, but understanding the technology, I think, is, is crucial to that. So your uh, insights have been very helpful on this. Uh, as far, Adib from Concordia University, thank you very much, and I, I hope you'll be able to testify before a committee when this gets uh, further through. Yeah, I hope so. And thank you so much for having me. Have a very good day. All right. Day. Thank you very much, Asfar. And, and look, I mean, I think he's, his points there that he's raised are, are useful. And I, I know that some of the words will will trip the radars of the privacy-minded when he talks about central server and, and biometrics and all of that. But I think that's important because if you are supporting this legislation, I think you need to realize what it is that is involved in this process. And look, I, I'm, I'm so sympathetic to the problem, and I, I cannot stress that enough. I am so sympathetic to wanting to keep children, vulnerable people, away from materials that they are not supposed to be accessing. But again, I also am uh, very aware of the fact that conservatives have spent the last few years railing against the CRTC expanding its regulatory control over the internet. So to all of a sudden wake up and say, well, we want the CRTC to regulate online porn, not just for Canadian content, which uh, we know is going to be coming. So people are going to be doing unspeakable things to their poutine once C11 is implemented on uh, these websites, but uh, not just regulating Canadian content, but regulating access and making these websites collect information about users, not just minors, but information about people who are, you know, 30, 40, 50, that for whatever reason, they want to kick back and enjoy the, the latest. And the thing that I find so fascinating about this conversation is that we're assuming that kids who are seeking this out will not find ways around it. And this is, I think, where we go to any parent who's tried to set up some, you know, parental controls on their internet surely has a false sense of security about that. Kids are smart. Kids outsmart technology. Kids will find ways to work around it. They'll go to websites that are unregulated. They'll uh, send stuff around in WhatsApp groups. I mean, it'll be like the equivalent of, I guess, passing around that same magazine that, you know, your older brother picked up or something like that in school, but they will find a way to do it. Now, does that result in a net benefit if it's still harder to come across? Maybe, maybe it does. But I think the problem that we run into here is that we are looking to government to be the answer. Whereas on this issue and so many others, I want to look at parents and say parents should be very forthright in having conversations with their children. Parents should be very aware of what their children are doing. Parent, we should be focusing on the education here. And I don't trust right now the public schools to uh, do this. I don't trust the public schools for reasons we've talked about in the last few months. Uh, one person in, in the chat says that biometrics is more invasive than ID. Yeah, I mean, that was the thing. Like originally when age verification came up, I'm thinking of like some poor guy that has to like, or, or woman, uh, you know, it's an equal opportunity that has to go and like scan their driver's license and, you know, upload it to Pornhub. And uh, all of a sudden there's now some database of, oh, uh, you know, John Smith of 123 Maple Street loves... Uh, well, you, you feel, use your imagination of what John Smith of 123 Maple Street loves. But uh, that that's the thing. And, and then, yeah, biometrics is even worse. So now John Smith just has to, like, stare at his webcam uh, while he's waiting for the video to load. And uh, this is exactly, I mean, if it's an awkward, uncomfortable topic, it should be. We're talking about people's very intimate uh, desires and practices and habits here. 
and government trying to regulate those and force companies that let's be real, I do not trust. I do not trust your average uh, purveyor of pornography online to be the uh, diligent protectors of your privacy because these are companies that have turned a blind eye to the sharing of non-consensual sexual images. These are companies that have turned a blind eye to child pornography on their platforms. A company, Companies that have no sense of the harm they are causing to society and childhood development. So no, I do not look at them and trust them to make these decisions. So we'll follow this as it proceeds. Uh, this is where the, the libertarian and me and the social conservative and me kind of have a, a fight about this. I, I'm hoping to get my friend Jonathan Van Maren with whom I have had many fights about this uh, subject and, and related ones on in the future, although he, he wasn't available today. Uh, we're going to be talking in a few moments time with Dr. Tom Flanagan. But before we get there, I learned recently and by recently, I mean like two and a half hours ago. Uh, I, it was like vaguely in my subconscious, so maybe I like saw it at one point before, that they're making a Law & Order Toronto. Like this is not a joke. They're making, uh, we put up the poster there. It's going to be coming to City TV in 2024. There we go. Law & Order Toronto criminal intent. And uh, what I what kind of refreshed this was I saw this morning a friend of mine in Toronto had stumbled upon a set where they were filming Law & Order Toronto. And it was, you know, we're filming here, everyone be quiet, yada, yada, yada. And I was just thinking of what that would look like. And I realized just how it would be such a horrendously boring show uh, because someone would get stabbed on the subway in the first scene. And then for the rest of the episode, people would just be waiting for police to show up and they never do. And then at the end, it would just be to be continued. And the episode is just, you know, will the police uh, come or are they going to be too busy doing other things? And then I, I was sort of thinking about Law & Order Toronto a little bit more and what that would look like. And I realized that uh, we could do this as the most inexpensive production possible because in Canada, you don't actually need to cast multiple actors to be different criminals. You can run the whole series on just one criminal who commits a crime and then is released on bail at the end of the episode. And then he commits another crime at the beginning of the next episode and is released on bail. So you can actually just get by with just having one single offender. And that would make it more like a documentary than a scripted drama. So I don't know if that's what the producers are doing, but that would be my recommendation on this. I had one person who had replied and said, no, 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 you're all wrong, Andrew. Uh, the show is just going to be about police going around uh, banging on people's doors because their tweet was a little bit racist. So I, as soon as I heard that, I felt like, oh my goodness, that's probably going to be the more accurate account of what's been happening here. So uh, let me know what you think uh, Law & Order Toronto is going to look Oh no, I did the Ameri I did I did the Toronto. I, you're supposed to say Toronto. I, I, I never pronounced the second T. I apologize to the people of Toronto for uh, mis, uh, mispronouncing your name. Although uh, lately, uh, now they've changed Dundas. So Dundas, who is this very positive figure in history that you may be familiar with, he's the, the guy, I mean, there's a town in Ontario named Dundas. We have uh, Dundas, Young Dundas Square. We have the Dundas subway station. They're, the city of Toronto did this massive inquiry over like the last three years to effectively rename anything with Dundas in it. And they realized it was going to cost a bajillion dollars and be so disruptive and all of that. And now what they've done is they've decided to, okay, we won't change everything. We'll just change some of the main things. So what, they, what they're agreeing on now is that they're going to change Young Dundas Square and they're going to change any TTC station that has Dundas in it, which I think is like two or three of them. Uh, they're renaming uh, Young Dundas Square Sankofa 
Sankofa Square. Now, the hilarious thing is, this is a we're, I don't know the language of Ghana. I don't know if it's Ghanese or Ghanaian. I apologize for, for not being an expert on African linguistics, but uh, it's apparently a, a word that originates in Ghana. And what the word means is the act of reflecting on and reclaiming teachings from the past, which enable us to move forward together. So they're saying that this word is about reclaiming teachings from the past while purging the name of this historic figure who, by the way, has not even done the things that he's been accused of, of just being some, you know, racist, hatey, hatey, hate monger. But they're trying to like put a, a heritage spin on this. And it's like, if you've ever been to Edmonton, Edmonton used to have municipal ward councils that were numbered one, two, three, four, five, six, and all that, like in every other city. And a, a couple of years back, they changed all the municipal wards to indigenous uh, words. And you'd look at them now and you have people that are being elected in wards that they cannot pronounce. Like I, you know, I could run in Dene because I can say Dene, but you've got others that are like, I, I, I'll, I'll get canceled if I try to pronounce them, but I look at them and it's like, you know, 17 letters and no vowels in it. And uh, I'm all for people, you know, being able to pronounce foreign languages and learn foreign languages and all of that. But uh, this is when we just take the reconciliation narrative a little bit too far that it starts getting in the way of practicality. And that's effectively uh, where we have uh, gone to with this. And I think it's why the discussion about the residential schools narrative is such an important one, because uh, this is an issue in which the uh, it all started with to Kamloops First Nation in British Columbia. They come out with a very damning allegation, the discovery of unmarked graves of hundreds of children on the site of the former residential school. Now, you compound this with a media that loves the spicy narrative, with a country that, generally speaking, does not know its own history all that well, and you had this narrative that took hold that was pushed by the New York Times, by CBC, by CTV, that there had been mass graves discovered, that hundreds and hundreds of children had been murdered at residential schools. And look, I participated on a radio panel where the host, who clearly was not familiar with the story and what was even being alleged, made this claim when that was never even what the people of Tecamloops were saying. But it started a bit of a trend and other First Nations started to announce these discoveries themselves. We heard things that were being discussed that no one really knew, like ground penetrating radar, which sounds like it's very precise, but in reality just detects abnormalities in the ground that could be remains of a human, that could be nothing of the sort. There have been excavations that have been done at some of these schools and they have not turned up anything resembling bodies. Where there was a site that did have bodies, it was an established graveyard that was used to bury both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. So this is not to say that nothing bad has happened at residential schools. It's to say that we need to have a level of historic context and understanding when we engage in a very hot button issue. But this became an incredibly potent one politically. It's why the flag of Canada, the national flag was at half mast on public buildings for I think it was well over six months. And it became literally a news story midway through the campaign when conservative leader Aaron O'Toole in 2021 says, yes, we should fly the Canadian flag at full mast. And that, I mean, again, the idea that someone wanting to be prime minister says, yes, we should fly the Canadian flag and not keep it at half mast indefinitely, that doesn't sound like it's supposed to be newsworthy.
but it was because that was the context in 2020 and 2021 that Justin Trudeau had set up, that Canada was a country we should be ashamed of, not proud of, that Canada's history was something we should run away from and condemn instead of celebrating and building upon. And that, I think, is why, as a country, understanding history is so important. I don't know if I have the book in my stack back there. I probably do, but I don't want you to like have to just look at my, my back uh, for some prolonged time while I try to find it. But uh, Mark Milkey's book, The 1867 Project, which was published by the Aristotle Foundation, did a great job at bringing in a range of people, including some from the political left, to talk about Canada and its history. And we had new Canadians, lifelong Canadians, lefties, right-wingers that were all saying, yeah, there's something about this country that we need to celebrate and honor and respect. And that, to me, is what we should be striving towards. And I, we're waiting for Tom Flanagan, who's been a, a very big purveyor of historic understanding for years, but he's also the co-editor alongside CP Champion of a new book, which True North actually co-published along with the Dorchester Review called Grave Error. And it's a collection of essays that does some of these very things that we're discussing. I, I should share the subtitle too, Grave Error, How the Media Misled Us and the truth about residential schools. And there's a, a foreword in there by Conrad Black, who, uh, by the way, if you have not read Conrad's book, The Canadian Manifesto, I would encourage you to do it. It was a very short read, I, and it was not particularly expensive, but it was a book that gave just this condensed and really accurate and compelling account of Canadian history. And it was uh, published by my publisher, Sutherland House. And it uh, came out a couple of years ago. And it was definitely one that I would encourage you to uh, take a look at. So if you're looking for a last minute stocking stuffer for someone who hates Canada, you can give them both Grave Error and Canadian Manifesto and hopefully bring them back on board here. But uh, why I think this is an interesting story is because it's not just a story of a country that does not know or care about or like its history, but it's also about a media that uh, has that same approach and that same attitude, but also a bit more of an arrogance in how it tells these stories. And I mean, there were a lot of journalists that I think were very afraid because of the political sensibilities around this to ask any questions. And, you know, there were some very awkward encounters between some journalists and some Indigenous people that were involved in, in making these announcements. And you'd see it, and journalists were very, very nervous and very apprehensive about getting involved uh, be because they didn't want to be seen as racist. They didn't want to be seen as not respecting their truth because we live in an era now in which truth is subjective. And I, I've grappled with the residential school issue because you can't have a nuanced conversation about it. I will not defend the residential schools program. I think it's a, a tremendous shame that we forced assimilation on people that did not want it. But that's also a small subset of the complexities around this issue. One is that uh, the attitudes of time periods evolve and change. There are many things we do even, I mean, look, I'm convinced that in five years we'll be in a country in which people will look at vaccine mandates differently than they did in 2021. We, with history, evolve and grow and we realize, okay, maybe we were well-intentioned at the time, but uh, didn't do the thing that we should have. But the other part that people often forget is how many Indigenous families saw this as being a positive for their children. The, yes, there were children that were snatched away from their families, but there were also families that very much wanted their children to have uh, a British education, to be steeped in the religious values of the day, the English language, and all of that. 
And the other part that's often very confused is that the residential schools of the 19th century were not the same as the residential schools of the 1990s. These things evolved as schools did in general. So when people say, and these residential schools were around until 1990, yes, they were. But we're not talking about the same dynamics that were happening and the same trends that were happening in the 19th century, the very heinous aspects of this that carried through up until just uh, effectively 30 some odd years ago. And it was interesting. I was reading back on a bit of more recent political history on this, because you recall in 2008, Stephen Harper gave his uh, very infamous apology in the House of Commons to victims and survivors of residential schools. And one of the things that came about through this was that there was also a, a payout program. It was called the Common Experience Payout. And it was a, a program that had been agreed to by the Liberal government previously, and the Conservatives decided not to rock the boat on, which gave every single victim and survivor of the residential schools a payout for having gone through that, irrespective of what their experience was. And it was deemed simpler to do that than to adjudicate. Now, there were there were additions where if you had uh, you know, been sexually abused, you'd get more money. And if you had been physically abused, you'd get more. But there was basically a, a baseline there where everyone was uh, getting access to this. And it was very contentious. And, and even among conservative members of parliament, there were some that were saying, well, hang on, I, I don't want to accept this premise here that everything was th this one way. Anytime a conservative politician has spoken up about this, like that uh, Senator Lynn Bayak, for example, it has uh, proven to be uh, very controversial. She was uh, kicked out of caucus uh, with that. So I, unfortunately, I think we're, we might be having some technical issues uh, with Tom Flanagan, so we'll have to reschedule that. But uh, it is a book that has been very well reviewed uh, so far. And I think you can still get it on Amazon in time for Christmas. It's called Grave Error. So hopefully you'll be able to take a look at that, how the media misled us and the truth about residential schools. Thankfully, I had like a ready-made rant on this subject anyway. So uh, it wasn't hopefully too, too bad to, uh, to fill the time there. But that does it for me for today. We will be back next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show as the countdown to Christmas continues here on True North. Thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.